Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number seven in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, March the 15th. First, I'll be talking to Simon Matter, the CEO of Prime Financial, and he'll share some interesting insights on the opportunities for smaller financial services firms in the wake of the Royal Commission which has the banks retreating from the wealth management space. And I'll be talking to Comsec economist Craig James about what to expect from the market in the week ahead. But now, let's talk to Simon Matter. Simon Matter, what impact is the Hain Royal Commission having on the financial services sector? Look, I think in its simplest form, it's, um, it's shining a light on some practices that uh, were no doubt fairly, fairly questionable, and it's, it's making it very clear that uh, putting the client first and making sure that advice that's in their best interest uh, is, is the first and only thing that should be considered. And Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. And I think that, uh, you know, if you kind of expand it out, there's a few other things that are happening around educational standards and, um, and making sure that the most qualified people are giving that advice that's in the best interest of clients 
uh, is going to make sure the clients are are well protected for the future. So I think across the the education, the separation of product, and making sure the best interest duties are uh, are focused on can only be a good thing for the client. Uh, nonetheless, it is having an impact on the industry, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is having an impact on the industry. I think you know it's you know if you look over the last probably ten years, there's been various uh, whether you call them inquiries or uh, or moments between changes in legislation, whatever it might be, where uh, everyone's just accepted that um, there needs to be better advice. And I think that longer term, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that through this inquiry it continues to occur, longer term, the, the real separation of the product and, and making sure that clients and the advice that they get is put at the forefront. So, yeah, it's absolutely, it's impacting um, the industry, whether it's a large institution, whether it's uh, more probably what's considered, I guess, independent, uh, albeit you've got to be very careful about the use of that term, but called non-bank-owned advisory firms. Yeah, absolutely, it's having an impact. And, you know, rightly, clients are asking more questions, uh, and that can probably only be a good thing, I would have thought. It would mean, though, that every financial services firm would be having, would need to double-check their procedures, wouldn't they? Absolutely, yeah, completely. I think that uh, when you, you know, when you're giving advice to clients, you've got to make sure that you've got a reasonable basis for that, um, and you've got to make sure you have the technology that uh, can track that you're actually delivering the service standards that you are promising to clients. Be that reviews, be that um, the basis of the advice, how you collect the data, how you store data, uh, all of those aspects play into it, and. Uh, so I think you know everything from conflicts about how you go about thinking about giving the advice to the clients, how you actually collect the data and then deliver that advice. I think everything has been brought into question, and, and rightly so. Right. I mean, we we I, I wasn't too surprised by some of the findings of the Royal Commission, although some of them were very very striking. What was your what was your response? Oh, look, I think I think when anything like this is occurring, that you actively question. Um, your own procedures, your own processes that you're going through. And I think, you know, from a board level all the way through management and then to the advisory level, you're you're checking and you're double-checking that you're, you're being as good as you can be around those things. Look, I, I think that, you know, sort of, and, and I'm careful about how you state these sort of things, but the, the perceived or actual mis-selling of products to people and um, whether that be on the banking front or, the superannuation side of things around um, how SMSFs might have been promoted to people. Uh, I think those are some of the things that are quite, uh, I won't say surprising because you'd anticipate that there would be some things that haven't probably been done as well as they could have been. But that's been quite an obvious um, standout, I think, uh, through that process that, again, it goes back to where I started the, the conversation when you asked me the first question, if, if the client's best interests aren't being put at, um, at the centre of everything that you're doing, then um, and you, you're thinking, okay, we've got this product that we need to sell and we need to be, and then the owner of that product is then seeking to incentivise people to sell more of it. I just can't see how that can work out well for the consumer or the client. So I think that product-driven process and, and probably what um, you know the life insurance industry evolved out of uh, you know, cutting that tail and, and really moving on is, is the key thing. So I think once that can be done and people take their responsibilities 
um, very seriously and, and act accordingly, then the outcomes prove. But the, you know, the some of the mis-selling and the misdelivery of those things is is highly concerning. Well, the, the banks have actually been uh, taking measures to address it. There's been all sorts of changes. I've seen uh, particularly at, uh, well, at all of them, actually, uh, in response to the Royal Commission. And uh, they're also, uh, the very noticeable trend is that they're pulling out of wealth management. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? What's your view about that? Yeah, you know, I think you, when you look back sort of the last 10 to 15 years or, or be, probably even beyond that, that I think, uh, the concept of trying to deliver clients more more services or, or additional products. You can see why banks decided to get more heavily involved with wealth management, superannuation and life insurance. You can understand the, the logic that they uh, have put in place. And I think, you know, probably even more broadly, if you look at it even uh, even further, maybe if you look at the investment banks as well, they've, they've tended to suggest they probably don't really want to be involved with um, in particular, retail financial advice moving forward. So I, I understand that some of the decisions that have been made, and, and to an extent, maybe some of it's been put in the in the too hard basket, uh, and and better off to focus on the core business of banking. So I think you can understand that. Uh, I think, and you know, when you, you talk to or you read press around, uh, I think Westpac are probably the only one that have decided that they. Uh, want to continue to have an involvement. They see the logic for their customers. Uh, that's interesting. So they're probably a bit of a standout. Uh, but you can understand, given uh, some of the challenges that have been faced and, and probably trying to disentangle the product from the advice piece, why uh, the majority of the banks and investment banks have headed away from it and focusing on what they, I guess, are their core business. You know, for a firm like like ours, you know, we've we don't have a proprietary product. So for us, being able to deliver advice and services to to customers has been the key thing for the last 20 years. So, you know, that is our core business. We see an opportunity that will come from uh, some of these changes that the banks are making and, and moving out of. And, and there's lots of different dynamics playing out, whether it's the educational standards, whether it's banks moving out of wealth management generally, uh, and then advisory groups like us wanting to grow and deliver more more value to, to our customers and new customers, I think opportunities will present. Uh, and I think it's definitely going to get reshaped over the next few years. And so you see this is, this is going to present an opportunity for smaller companies to move into wealth management, obviously. Yeah, I think so. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not there's, you know, I think there's been a perception, and we're going to be very careful when we're having this, this conversation as to which layer you're talking about within wealth management obviously there's platform and then there's funds management and there's advice uh then there's dealer groups and various other things so it's easy to lump everything in together and and make um, pretty broad statements but uh you know i think that you know smaller groups that want to attract high quality advisors that have the right educational qualifications i think there'll be people that flow out of the banks and out of institutions that want to um, are used to having support and will need some support uh, and won't necessarily go and get their own licence and just try and do it themselves. So that will present an opportunity for companies like uh, like Prime and, and other people to play in this space. And, uh, you know, I think the, the also the, you know, if there's 25,000 or thereabouts financial advisors in this country and, and the educational standards are going to change it, um, the way that has been proposed, then, you know, you could see a, a substantial drop-off on in numbers so what is that going to mean in terms of how advice is delivered to, to clients if there's 
20, 30 or 40% fewer advisors to do it uh, and the need hasn't disappeared, then um, you know, how do you, how, how's that actually going to play out? And presumably people that are already or continuing to operate in that space will be presented with, with opportunities for growth. Well, the $64 question, of course, is what can these smaller companies offer that banks can't? I think in its simplest form, personalised service. I think there's a challenge with getting too big. And, and I think you know, that if you don't have, and, and this is perhaps some of the things that have been, uh, become quite obvious, is that if you don't have the right systems and processes and, and you're not close enough to the customer or the client, then, then things can, the theory of what you're trying to do versus the practice can become quite different. So I, you know, I think that if you've, if you've kind of built your business uh, starting first with the customer or the client, then, then surely this environment, what you're going to do is continue to do more of that and hopefully um, get better and better of it with more robust processes and systems. So I think uh, I'm not suggesting that the banks haven't uh, in the past put, put clients first, but uh, as you stated at the start, perhaps that's some of the instances that have come out here is that it's been more product-driven than um, advice or service-based. So I think it does present opportunities, absolutely, for us to keep doing more of what we do now, but but hopefully in a in a growing environment. Right, right, and so in a sense, uh, you could actually make a better go of it than the banks because you'll be offering more personalised service. I'd absolutely hope so. Uh, and uh, you know, our model has been built. You know, we were founded by accountants as a as a business, and and the, and the concept of a uh, you know accountant coming from a um, a particularly probably fiduciary basis where. Uh, they've always had a focus on structure and the, and the strategy for a client. I think that that serves us well in our DNA. And, and as we've then uh, moved, obviously, into superannuation and investment management, uh, you know, we're, what we're trying to do is to have the client have a more complete experience with a with a trusted group of advisors where where there's not you know, product isn't the central theme. Uh, I just think if you service customers really, really well and you focus on their needs, then then the rewards will be long term. And and so yeah, I think we I think we are well positioned, absolutely. Well, Simon, it's been great talking to you, and uh, it's going to be a very fascinating space to watch. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for the opportunity, Larry. Have a good day. And now let's talk to Comsec economist Craig James. Well, Craig James, what can people expect from the market the coming week? Um, well, it all gets down to really U.S. and China still. Um, we're, we're still waiting on resolution, you know, so the U.S.-China uh, uh, trade dispute, you know, so negotiations, you know, it's underway there. But, you know, so that's the, the real issue. In terms of um, economic data, um, really what stands out, you know, in a big way is the, the labour force figures, you know, so on Thursday. Uh, the, the job market's in really good shape, and that's you know, sort of confusing a lot of people because they're looking at the economic growth figures and they're saying we're hardly growing. And then you look at the economic, the uh, the employment figures, and it shows that we've got an unemployment rate at seven and a half year low of five percent. In fact, in New South Wales, we've got the lowest unemployment rate that we've ever seen in the monthly series. You have to go back to the early 1970s to see something like 3.9%. So we've got the, the job market in pretty good shape, and we expect that it remained in good shape. We're looking for a 15,000 gain in terms of uh, jobs you know, sort of over um, the, the month of February. So the job market's still in good sh- shape. Yes, one way or another, we're going to have to get a resolution you know, sort of, of the the, uh, the issue about you know, so which one is correct is it the uh, the GDP figures or is it the economic GDP figures or is it the employment figures? And, uh, it seemed that uh, 
the, last week's retail figures also showed that uh, retail had slumped quite profoundly in New South Wales and Victoria, where there was good job growth. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, sort of we look at you know the retail trade figures, and uh, when you look at the the headline retail trade, it looks as though you know so uh, consumers are hardly spending. Um, the, there is another component of that retail sales, and and that basically is dealing with. Um, uh, the the large retailers so, so it, it retail sales works on a survey we do know that uh, each and every month the the big retailers and the chains are always surveyed and what that showed is for the latest month uh, the big retailers and chains showed retail sales growth of 0.4%. So um, that would suggest that there's not a problem at all, that um, um, people are getting jobs, people are spending, uh, but um, the headline retail sales is, is showing a, another description. So we have got the, these uh, disagreements, if you like, between the economic data that's happening around Australia at the moment, whether you look at you know, sort of spending levels, whether you look at employment, and whether you look at you know, broader measures of economic growth. In fact, you know, so there's one area of the economy that looks as though it's going gangbusters at the moment, um, and that's the um, uh, the export data. It's showing that um, we've got significant growth in exports uh, right the way across the globe. It's not just China. It's not just J- Japan. We've got 73 countries across the, the, the globe where Australia is recording double-digit export growth. Um, now, if our economy was uh, stalling in you know, sort of a big way, we wouldn't be seeing you know, so that degree of strength in terms of exports. Uh, so why wouldn't that be showing up in the GDP numbers? Well, I think what we're seeing is, you know, so exports, you know, are doing, you know, sort of okay, but, you know, so the imports are also rising at the same time. So the GDP figures work on net exports, exports less imports. And um, if imports, you know, sort of rising, um, due to the fact that... Um, uh, we've got an infrastructure boom, you know, sort of here in, in Australia. Um, clearly, we need to bring in, you know, sort of new equipment um, uh, for that uh, infrastructure boom. If we're building, you know, sort of uh, railroads, uh, tramways, um, tunnels and, and the like, clearly you need the equipment that's being brought in. Uh, so that may be, you know, sort of one issue at the moment. Um, one of the other issues may be that... Um, Australian consumers, you know, sort of buying more goods from overseas rather than, you know, sort of domestically. So it is perhaps, you know, sort of case that um, the degree of choice that we're getting from overseas is is causing people to um, buy goods online and buy it from other parts of the world, despite the fact that the lower Aussie dollar would suggest that, you know, sort of people should be buying it, you know, more domestically. So, yeah, it's an interesting, you know, sort of discussion point that we're seeing, you know, in terms of the economy at the moment, just what strength is it in, just what shape is it in, because seemingly, you know, we've got these indicators that, you know, sort of expressing, you know, sort of different verdicts on the whole issue. So that's all quite confusing when you when you look at the overall picture. Well, it is quite confusing, and um, you could understand why. You know, so the Reserve Bank governor is scratching his head and saying, "Look, we're going to have to get you know sort of some resolution of the issue." You know, it's the same, I suppose, when we were looking at the housing market. Sydney and Melbourne home prices um, are raising, and that's quite understandable given the fact that they basically rose significantly you know, some more than you know, sort of other the capital cities. Now they're coming back to earth with more supply on, on the market. Um, but um, you go to Brisbane, you go to Adelaide, you, know, so you go to other parts of the, the country, and they're not telling you that there's a, 
a housing crisis. They're not telling you uh, about substantially rising or falling in home prices. They're talking about you know sort of much flatter market and one that's been you know, so flat for, for quite some time. So um, certainly, you know, sort of a, if we, even if we're looking you know, at sort of housing activity, it seems as though it's you know, so this two-speed economy type thing you know, so coming in again. The fact that um, we've got um, a down speed in terms of uh, Sydney and Melbourne prices, but uh, the rest of the country you know, sort of in you know, some much different sort of shape. Right, OK. So while we have to look out for the jobs figures, uh, the big issue is the... the the trade talks between China and the US, uh, which is coming to high point next week. Well, yes, you know, sort of, um, um, there, there's positive noises, and we're hearing these positive noises, but you just wonder, you know, whether investors are just starting to get a little bit exasperated by, by the whole situation. I, I suppose what we've got to understand is that th- this is um, a very complicated uh, set of negotiations that are un- underway, and... Um, Perhaps we're thinking that you know, sort of something like this will be solved very, very quickly. But um, yeah, this is um, uh, some issues that you know, sort of been not just around for for years, but around for for decades. And uh, um, we're we're getting you know, sort of progress, you know, sort of coming through. Certainly, we do know that in terms of the positive noises coming out. But um, you know, it's the question of the, is. Um, whether US and China want um, a full, complete deal or whether they'd be happy with, um, you know, sort of partial issues, you know, sort of get get resolved. And and that's the issue, I suppose. We know that when the United States walked away from the talks with North Korea that um, it didn't really get everything that it wanted and, you know, sort of walked away. Now, if if that's the issue with the US-China trade talks, well, we may have a similar sort of disappointment. What we need from both sides is um, uh, a degree of um, give and take. And um, perhaps we don't get all the issues resolved, but um, if we can get some sort of agreement and uh, a resolution to be able to talk on the other issues, I think that's something that you know, sort of most people you know, around the world could could live with quite quite easily. Nonetheless, so the question is whether the issues will actually be resolved. I mean, obviously it's in China's interest to get them resolved because their economy is slowing down quite profoundly. Uh, The American economy seems to be slowing down. And uh, we're heading into an election next year, so it's in Donald Trump's interest to get this sorted out. But at the same time, uh, the question is whether the the key issues of China's, uh, the Chinese government control of the economy can be resolved. Well, yes, I suppose, yes, that is, yes, sort of the major issue. Um, um, uh, I I suppose uh, what we do have, yes, is the the, uh, uh, central, yes, government in in, um, Beijing, and uh, then you've got, yes, sort of all the uh, sort of um, little affiliates, yes, sort of out or the the country, around the countryside, yes, sort of, so they've all got to be, yes, sort of brought, yes, sort of into line, but... um, um, I, I think, you know, sort of, uh, because we've had the, the National People's Congress, you know, sort of, I think it should be made fairly clear, you know, sort of in that agenda that what we do need is, you know, sort of, it's in the good of the interests of you know, the entire nation to be able to get some resolution. As you say, you know, so the Chinese economy slowing quite markedly, that puts a degree of pressure on, on them in an economic sense. But in terms of a political sense, certainly, you know, sort of Trump, he has had um, a limited success with the, the border wall, limited success with the North Korean negotiations, and if he was to uh, also have limited success with the, the US-China, yes, that would put a lot of pressure on him from a political standpoint. Um, and 
Yeah, we are moving you know, sort of through to um, you know, sort of the, the big time in, in US politics, moving ahead you know, into to the next election. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch, as will uh, the employment figures for next week, uh, particularly with uh, us heading into an election in May. Well, yes, yes. Uh, it, it's interesting, though, that the um, positive and negative economic data doesn't seem as though it's uh, having you know, sort of much impact in terms of the, um, the, the voters, you know, sort of the, the general uh, perception, you know, sort of, is that um, we might get some good, you know, say economic data, but it's not resonating with the, the ordinary, you know, sort of uh, Australian. So um, uh, it, it's an interesting one, you know, sort of, ha- the, the government has got a pretty good story to tell when you think about it, you know, sort of, in terms of the, um, the entire position of the economy. We've had 27 years without an economic downturn, we ha- without a recession. Uh, we've got low inflation. We've got the lowest interest rates that we've ever seen. We've got a job market, you know, sort of in good shape. Uh, you just wonder, you know, sort of what people, you know, sort of overly concerned with. And, you know, so generally if you had a, a government around around the world that, you know, sort of such has good economic data, then uh, you'd wonder why they weren't ahead in the polls. But, um, you know, there's other issues at play, you know, such so the stability of the government, I think, probably, you know, sort of the stability, you know, sort of the participants of the government, uh, which, you know, so is the main issue for, for ordinary people. It's also the fact that um, uh, here in Australia that... Um, once you've had, you know, sort of a couple of terms, you know, so there's a perception is, you know, say, so okay, give, you know, the the, uh, the next um, mob a go and, you know, sort of see how they go. Well, Craig, it's going to be fascinating to watch and thank you very much for your update on uh, what we can expect from the market in the week ahead. It was my pleasure. So what's happening in the news? Well, Boeing Company grappled with more groundings of its most important airliner as operators from Brazil to South Korea idled the 737 MAX following a second deadly crash, throwing the US manufacturer deeper into crisis. The fallout from the crash has weighed on Boeing stock and the share market, with questions swirling around the future of the newest version of its 737 family, a cash cow that generates almost a third of a company's operating profit. After China became the first major market on Monday to halt takeoffs and landings of Boeing's latest single-aisle model, flight halts quickly cascaded around the globe, Singapore barred all 737 MAX service in and out of the city-state, a move that was followed by Australia and Malaysia. The UK said it would halt flights for 737 MAX and other European countries followed suit. Europe's aviation regulator prepared a similar action as the region joins a global rebuke of a US manufacturer's most important plane. The suspensions have put about a third of a 350-strong global fleet out of action. The bans in Singapore and Australia mean that the newest version of Boeing's best-selling model is now blocked from a key long-distance travel destination, as well as Singapore's Changi, Asia's second biggest international airport and a popular transit hub. And Prime Minister Theresa May's EU withdrawal deal has been rejected by MPs for a second time, throwing her Brexit strategy into further confusion. MPs voted down her deal by 391 to 242, a smaller defeat than when they rejected it in January. The PM said MPs will now get a vote on whether the UK should leave without a deal on the 29th of March, and, if that fails, on whether Brexit should be delayed. That's the most likely outcome. She had earlier warned MPs that if they did not back her improved deal, they risked no Brexit at all. 
but she failed to convince enough of them that concessions she had agreed at the last minute with the EU were legally binding changes they had demanded when they rejected the deal by 230 votes in January. Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, which keeps a government in power, voted against the deal, along with Brexiteer Conservative backbenchers. And the latest NAB business survey found there had been a broad-based decline in conditions, with key forward-looking indicators pointing to ongoing weakness. Business operating conditions in Australia have materially deteriorated in early 2019, posing downside risks for investment, hiring and broader economic growth in the period ahead, according to the National Australia Bank's Business Confidence Survey for February. The NAB's conditions index fell three points to four during the month, dragged lower by weakening views towards profitability and trading conditions. The separate business confidence index also slipped by two points to two, leaving it at the lowest level since January 2016. At the same time, consumer confidence is tanking, according to two opinion polls. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index tanked 4.8%, leaving it at the lowest level since late 2017. Sentiment towards family finances with views on current conditions and those in the year ahead slid 2.9% and 5.4% respectively, and views on current economic conditions tanked by 7.9%, while sentiment towards the economy looking five years ahead fell by a smaller but equally ugly 5.4%. And the Westpac MI index slumped 4.8% to 98.8, leaving it at the lowest level since September 2017. The main reasons cited were the December quarter accounts, which had Australia's economic growth slowing to a 1% annual pace over the second half of 2018, widely described as a per capita recession in media coverage, and the housing market downturn. And home lending is down by more than 20% in the last year, the biggest annual decline since 2008. New figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed lending to households fell 2.4% in January, dragged down by a slide in the value of lending for homes. Lending to households for dwellings, excluding refinancing, was down 2.1%, with owner-occupier lending down 1.3%, which was better than market expectations of a 2% decline. And while the Queensland Nationals are pushing for coal-fired power stations, and the Morrison government has not ruled out supporting coal, the Reserve Bank of Australia has warned climate change is likely to cause economic shocks and threaten Australia's financial stability unless businesses take immediate stock of the risks. The central bank became the latest Australian regulator to tell business they must analyse their investments. As the coalition grapples with an internal battle over taxpayer-funded coal-fired power and energy policy. In a speech to the Centre for Policy Development in Sydney, the Reserve's Deputy Governor Guy de Bell said challenges for financial stability may rise from both physical and transition risks of climate change. What if droughts are more frequent or cyclones happen more often, he asks. The supply shock is no longer temporary but close to permanent. That situation is more challenging to assess and respond to. Financial stability could be put at risk if businesses remained unaware of unanticipated insurance payouts, pollution-driven reputational damage, legal liability and regulation changes that could cause valuable assets to become uneconomic. Dr DeBell said the current drought across large swathes of the eastern states had already reduced farm output by around 6% and total economic growth by about 5.15%. That has an impact on monetary policy, Dr DeBell said, citing the temporary shock of banana prices surging after Cyclone Yassi in 2011 
which in turn boosted inflation by 0.7 percentage points. But he said future events may not be so one-off, with repeated climate events and the transition of the economy likely to have a longer-term impact. And ASIC is planning to target senior executives and company directors as part of a new police-style approach to enforcing the law. Under the new regime proposed by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission's Enforcement Specialist, Daniel Crennan QC, the regulator plans bringing prosecutions both large corporates, especially in the scandal-ridden finance sector, and individuals, particularly at executive and board level. Mr Crennan's 125-page review of enforcement policies has a prejudice in favour of litigation and against negotiated agreement. Opposition leader Bill Shorten is preparing to legislate a living wage if he becomes Prime Minister in a move that would boost minimum pay packets and embolden unions but alarm corporate Australia just two months out from the federal election. Dismissing business leaders opposed to a rise as fat cats, the Labor leader foreshadowed a change in the law to encourage the Independent Fair Work Commission to set a higher minimum wage. Business threatened job losses within hours of Mr Shorten's comments, which have placed industrial relations firmly at the centre of the impending election campaign. The plan to abolish trailing commissions for mortgage brokers, as recommended by the recent Banking Royal Commission report, has been dropped by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. Following consultation with the mortgage broking industry and small lenders, the Coalition Government has decided not to prohibit trail commissions on new loans, but rather review their operation in three years' time, he wrote in a statement. Mr Frydenberg said the review will be conducted by the Council of Financial Regulators and the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, and would also consider if upfront commissions would continue. NAB Interim Chief Executive Philip Cronican says he expects greater accountability and focus from senior figures at the bank when he becomes chairman. Mr Cronican, who will replace Ken Henry as chairman once a yet-to-be-chosen new chief executive is in place, said board renewal was a priority and it was down to the bank's leaders to raise their game in response to the failings aired at the Royal Commission. I am confident in the strategic direction we have for NAB, Mr Cronican said in a letter to shareholders. My expectation of the bank's leaders is that they implement our strategy with greater accountability and focus. Mr Cronican said NAB, whose leadership was lambasted by Commissioner Kenneth Hayne, had let down customers, owners, community and staff, but had returned more than $110 million in refunds and remediation to 310,000 customers since June last year. Footwear startup Shoes of Prey has just entered into liquidation, with Kelly Trentfield and John Park of FTI Consulting appointed as administrators. Co-founder Michael Fox cited the company's failure to gain traction in the mass market, as well as its difficulty in competing with cheap Chinese manufacturers as two driving reasons behind the collapse. And Sanjeev Gupta, the man credited with saving the iconic Wyala Steelworks, is targeting a near $5 $5 billion float of the Australian arm of his sprawling industrial empire in a move he hopes will quash speculation his business may be in trouble. Mr Gupta said an initial public offering of the Australian business would show his companies can work under governance rules, being listed would bring transparency and shows our model is successful. He added being a listed company would also mean the discipline of publishing accounts as well as giving us a currency and market value which will allow us to do other things. The Wyala plant became a totem of Australian industry in the carbon tax debate, after then-opposition leader Tony Abbott said the town would be wiped out by the Gillard government's planned carbon tax in 2011, 
and Trade Minister Craig Emerson responded in song. The Wyala Steelworks owner Arium went into administration in April 2016, owing creditors about $2 billion, and remained in limbo for over a year before being sold to Mr Gupta's Gupta Family Group Alliance in 2017. Then South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall said the sale was a great victory for Wyala and an extraordinary victory for South Australia. Arium provided about 3,000 jobs in Wyala, a town of 22,000 people, when it went into administration, and its revival was heralded across the political spectrum. The New York hedge fund, Manicay Partners, has doubled down on its call for the board of accounting software company, MYOB, to reconsider a takeover offer from vaunted private equity firm, KKR, demanding the company provided with key documents related to the bid. In a letter addressed to MYOB chairman Justin Milne, dated March 6, the hedge fund, run by former Australian Securities Exchange Director Shane Finemore, asked the company to provide it with a copy of a draft scheme booklet and independent experts report that was lodged with the regulator. Australian miner Newcrest, the third biggest gold producer by market value, agreed to an $806.5 million deal to add an Imperial Metals Core mine in Canada, extending the spree of deal-making in the sector. Melbourne-based Newcrest, which is currently focused on mines in Australia, Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, will acquire a 70% joint venture interest in the Red Chris Copper and Gold Mine in British Columbia and become the operator of a site, the producer said. The mine, on the northern edge of the Skeena Mountains, about 1,700 kilometres north of Vancouver, gives Newcrest a producing asset in North America and has significant development opportunities, the company said. And flooding in northwestern Queensland has meant the loss of as many as 52,875 cattle for the country's largest beef producer, the Australian Agricultural Company. A complete assessment of cattle numbers will occur as mustering by AACO and our neighbouring properties is undertaken over coming months, the company said in a statement to the ASX on Monday morning. AACO estimated it would cost between $6 million and $8 million to repair damage to property, plant, fencing, station and water infrastructure at the company's four Gulf of Carpentaria properties in Wundula, Canaby, Dalgonali and Karam. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll have a great interview with Mayfair 101 CEO, James Mawinney, who'll be talking about the Mayfair 101 IPO Wealth Fund, which has raised over $30 million from predominantly self-managed super funds. James believes there's been an expansion in the breadth of investment scopes from self-managed super funds, and thus is anticipating an uptick in investments in technology, both directly and indirectly. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, looking at the state of the economy in the lead-up to the election, and what it means for the federal budget due in 10 days' time. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care. Be good. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.